when you communicate a result or you communicate the why behind what's needed, when you're not around, they can fill in the blank. So it speeds the process of how you delegate to it. Helping business leaders grow themselves, their team, and their profits. This is Entree Leadership. Now, here's your host, Ken Coleman. Coming to you from the Music City, this is the broadcast of leaders, by leaders, for leaders. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Here's what we got coming up for you this episode. Our good friends Brian and Shannon Miles, the co-founders of Belay, one of the most innovative companies in America, rejoin us. And speaking of rejoining us, how about our old friend and great friend Donald Miller? You can never get enough of Donald Miller. He's going to be interviewed by Entree Leadership Coach Alex Judge. So we've got a lot of goodness coming your way. Let's get right to it. Brian and Shannon Miles are good friends because they were customers first and they adopted the Entree Leadership Principles and they saw tremendous success and they know how to lead and grow a company. If you're not familiar with who they are, you can learn more about them on episode 247. Now today we're going to talk about how they've grown Belay and how the role of a virtual assistant can actually enhance your business. Here is my conversation with Brian and Shannon Miles. Well, this is exciting. Brian and Shannon Miles back in studio with us, and you've been on with us before, so you're not new to our audience, but things are exploding for you, and today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go much deeper, much more practical into this idea of leadership, growing the company, things that you guys have done, but then also this virtual assistant thing. How do you really make it work? Because I think with what you guys are doing, you're really on the frontier, and I think it's really changing the way people work. Let's first talk about leadership because you two, what I love about your story really has in some ways, a lot of parallels to Dave and Sharon. Mm. Dave started this place after, you know, a failure and he starts it in his living room. Cause he's like, I don't know what else to do. Okay. Card table, living room. You guys know the story. You two started this together. Mm-hmm. You got little ones, you know, both successful previous you come together, husband, wife, launch a company from scratch. Yep. So that would be the context. And so I want you to talk a little bit about this idea of owning the company, not running the company, because we hear this stress all the time. I'm the chief everything mm-hmm. officer. Talk to us a little bit. Sure. Owning, not running came from essentially climbing a mountain with a friend of mine. Uh, it was 2011. We were seven months into our business and we were on the Grand Teton and it was at 10,000 feet and he was an advisor friend and he basically asked me questions about the business and I'd said something around the lines of, well, I own this thing or whatever. And he goes, well, you don't, you don't own anything. And it's I'm, just kind of in your face. Kind yeah, of right, yeah. Right. And I'm like, yes, I do. I don't, what are you talking about? Like I got really kind of irritated by him. hating. clearly he was going to teach me a principle. Right. So I sat down and he goes, listen, he said, the day that the business doesn't need you day to day is the day that you own the business until then you run a business. And that ticked me off. Mm-hmm. And we went to the top of the mountain the following morning and we came back down and Shannon was there in Jackson, Wyoming. And I said, Hey, this is the conversation we need to own, not run. And so seven months into our business, we basically created that mantra of own, not run. And it's informed so many decisions since then in the seven, eight years now we've been in business. Mm-hmm. And I think that scares some people. They're yeah. hearing that right yeah. now. They go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, what, what are we talking about? But I don't think it's as scary as they think it is. Explain what that looks like from both of your perspectives in mm-hmm. your roles, that you are owning a company and you're not running, meaning they're doing it without you if necessary, but you're still very much involved, yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and let's be clear. It is a goal that we're striving toward. It is not where we are today, but it does inform how we hire, Mm -hmm. how we delegate, how we train up other leaders. Because if the idea is that eventually we'll be at a place where we're owning the business, it doesn't rely on us day to day, and we're getting there. But if we're in that place, we've got to have capable leaders who can be empowered, make decisions, and really own their aspect of the company. And so we hire ahead of time, and we have intentional professional development, and that's kind of how it plays out practically for us. Yeah, nothing great or of size happened with one person. Right. If you're going to do something of meaning with your business, you're going to have to find great people and get out of their way. Yeah. You know, and defer to them and empower them and resource them. So we've yeah. just tried to do that. Yeah. And, and you talk to leaders all the time. Yeah. Like, the business can consume you. It can 
chew you up and yeah. spit you out and make you forget why you even started the thing to begin with. And we just never wanted that, mm-hmm. you know? And, and there are seasons that are busy and challenging and all that, but it's, it's heartbreaking to see a business owner who feels like they've got to be the one to do all of the yeah. things. Mm-hmm. And it's just not true. Shannon, you mentioned developing these people. Yeah. And we hear all the time at events, question came up, I can't find good people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just going, you're going to have to develop them into good people, right? Mm-hmm. You right. Know what I mean, th- yeah. th- that's part of leadership. I want you to speak to that because you hear that too. How are you finding good people? And then even if they're good people, if they're not where you ultimately want them, how are you developing them to be what you need them to be? Yeah. yeah. We all have to be developed, right? Like no, none oh, yeah. of us were born to do this job that we're doing. We all have to learn and grow. I think for us, it's very practical where We've stolen so much entree leadership material, it's not even funny. So we have KRAs, the key results areas, the job descriptions, that make it really clear right from the beginning what we're hiring for. And then you find the right person who's a great cultural fit. But then you you have to be thoughtful in your onboarding. And you start small, and you give them a chance to prove themselves, and then— Okay, they did a great job there. Let's continue to to give more of that. And it's the concept of the rope, right? And the whole podcast you guys did on delegation, like that is such a key element of leadership development. I can't emphasize it enough. Our key leaders in our company were assistants. Mm-hmm. I would be interested to hear, what was the emotional journey for you to get to a place where you truly delegated? It was early on in my career. I mean, before our company, I had a, um, I fortunately had a great assistant seven years before we ever started our company. When you find great people, you can just get out of their way. Yeah. You know, this is a big thing too. You want to delegate a result, not a task. Uh-huh. And so in this case, it was Trisha. And I'd say, Trisha, this is the result I need. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And you're probably smarter about how to get to it than I am. So I'm here if you need my help or whatever, but this is the result that's expected, not the task. Mm, and that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think in all the times I've been with you, I've ever heard that. Yeah. You just, because it's very interesting because you're giving them the freedom to figure it out. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think about it. We hire adults. And then they want to feel trusted. So what greater way to communicate that you trust them to say, here's the result I need. Mm-hmm. And just hand that off to them. And they do a great job with it in most cases. Interesting. Yeah. How often, though, when you say something like that, does somebody go, okay, are you uh, going to show me how I can get that result? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you, I mean, you've got to help them say, okay, here's the, kind of the boundaries or here's kind of the, here's the, the playground we're going to be on for right. this set of experience or for this project. But most times we have just we found people we've been intentional to find people that roll their sleeves up and we'll just get after it you know and yeah. they love it I mean they want to be part of being yeah. the result and frankly when we work from home like we're all virtual when you communicate a result or you communicate the why behind what's needed when you're not around they can fill in the blank that's good so it mm-hmm. speeds the process of how you delegate too mm-hmm. I'm gonna say that again for you folks out there uh, <laughs> that's really good don't delegate a task. Delegate a result. That's really good. Brian Miles, you can tweet that. Give him some credit on that. I don't know if you stole it. It doesn't matter. It's really, really good. Okay, so now let's move into, again, some practical efficiencies around this idea of delegation. Obviously, you guys run a very successful virtual assistant company. And one of the things that you all teach your clients, you've taught us, it's something I think is really great for us to talk about, is how to work effectively with the virtual assistant. And how do you not just go from, okay, I'm working, we've got that person in place, but really turning this into a production machine? Yeah. The clients of ours or our leaders internally that are most successful working with a virtual assistant don't see them as an assistant. They actually see them as a work alongside partner. They see them as an extension of who they are as a leader. And so when you start to see somebody as that partner to help you execute, you grease the tracks for them. You say, hey, if you know Jenny or whatever her name is or his name, if Jenny's calling, it's as if I'm calling. You free them up to basically go and be representative of who you are, and it's a multiple on you. It's not like a one-times multiple. It's a, it's a four-five multiple on your productivity as a leader when you see them as way more than an assistant. And you cast that image to your team, too. Wow. We actually, it's, it's so ironic, we both have a new assistant <laughs> because our, our former assistants uh, moved on to do other things, right. one within the company and one without. And so we we're in this place of, of transition, and it gave me a whole renewed perspective on what our clients go through. Sure. And I think it was a reminder of, in the beginning, how long things take. You know, like you want to just hit the ground running. Right. And sometimes by the time you've decided to get an assistant, you're already buried. 
right? And so it's like there's a sense of urgency. I've got to get them on board fast, but it just takes time. So I think a really practical tip is just give yourself space to slow down Mm -hmm. and really train because the time that you're investing in the beginning of that relationship will pay off in dividends later. What is your advice, not just within the context of Belay, of course, with people that are selecting someone. So I'd love to hear, you know, that process of how you match them up the right way. But then just for leaders that are listening or watching and they're going, okay, I've got an assistant or I need to hire a new assistant. I think you are uniquely positioned to kind of say, okay, if the assistant is going to be an extension of you, so it's not really an assistant. I mean, this is an extension like you talked about, Brian. What do you feel are like the non-negotiables in selecting that person? What is absolutely like, this has got to be a fit or it's not going to truly be that extension? Because it feels like what you're proposing requires a greater selection process to really make sure you have the right person. I'd say even before the assistant, it starts with the leader. I mean, frankly, a lot of leaders, they have this idea of what an assistant is in their head, and they're not giving themselves permission to see what that role could actually be. Mm-hmm. For example, it's a really simple thing. I'm a leader at home as much as I'm a leader at work. So Hope, our current assistant, helps us with personal things. Why would I need to schedule a dentist appointment in the middle of the day when she can help us kind of navigate that? In the same way, she can hunt down a metric in our business. But it starts with me opening my mind as a leader, to what is really possible with an assistant. Even before you get to like, okay, here are the criteria we're looking for, it really starts with how a leader is going to trust and yield up trust to these folks that will come alongside them in that way. Mm -hmm. Frankly, for us, we want assistants that can anticipate needs. Mm -hmm. Like, get out ahead of a leader and say, I'm seeing this coming, and I need to get out ahead of you, and I'm going to make sure that we cover this off before we ever get there. I love when Hope does that, and she goes, hey, I'm I saw this and I realized it's overlapping. We need to address that. Or I saw something in your inbox. Really feel like you need to jump on that super quick. Can I help craft a response for you? It's helping, again, be an extension of who I am as a leader, but anticipating needs is huge. Yeah. What fits for you? What's your process? I think a key attribute that we look for in all of our team members is resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. Because the speed at which information is changing and technology is becoming available, you have to be resourceful to figure out the answers to the questions that come up. Mm -hmm. You have to be agile like that. So I think some of the factors that we factor in when matching are, you know, personality fits, availability, Mm -hmm. pace. Some people work better in different environments um, of speed and some are slower to change. You have to like who you're working with, right? right? So just finding people who are generally ready to go after it, super resourceful, and and want to have fun doing yeah, it, too. There's got to be huge. some chemistry. There's there, got to there be, must right? be, And it takes sometimes a little bit of time to really understand what this person's doing with their business, and you've got to really like care about this assistant because they're, they're really becoming part of your team. Yeah. You know, and part of truly, you're, from an intimate level, really closely to you as a leader. So you've got to really know these folks and demonstrate that to them. And, I, and the other thing, too, you know, we work with folks all over the U.S. They've got to have, in some places in like rural markets, so they've got to have a high-speed internet connection. Mm-hmm. If they're virtual, you know, they've got to have a really solid webcam because we've got to see each other. We've got to visually connect sure. with each right. other. So, I mean, there's some practical, technical things that have to happen with yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, really practical here because, again, whether or not you have a virtual assistant or not, you're going to learn a lot from this stuff. So mm-hmm. don't check out, people. Let's talk <laughs> about separate calendars. Now, what uh, in the world is that? I mean, I think I know what it means, but why is that important? What's it look like? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you for us, like I see a lot of leaders, especially when I was you know, doing sales in our business, we'd see a lot of leaders that had a personal calendar and a work calendar. And the reason why they were calling us is because both calendars were a hot mess. Yes. They just, they weren't color coded. There was no organization behind it. They had overlap. They probably overcommitted at home and they overcommitted at work. And so we just, we tell folks one calendar, that's right. It's all got to fit in there. You're one person. You're one human. Mm-hmm. You know, good. and so as a result of that, if you can just get everything to fit and you have somebody kind of orchestrate that and can oversee it, it I, it's such a win for leaders and it's so and it's so simple like you know, just color code. Just yeah. and that way you can look in a week glance. Oh my gosh, I'm busy this week with a bunch of phone calls or I'm traveling this week or I got a lot of personal things going on mm-hmm. and it helps you kind of manage a pace as a leader mm-hmm. too. And one step further than that is is letting your assistant know how you want your calendar to be so that they can hold you accountable of can you really schedule a lot of this one particular type of meeting this right. week? Like I, what can we move to next week? Right. 
and really giving them permission mm -hmm. to own that part. What about things like uh, blocking off time so that yeah. it's untouchable? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. throw a couple things at you guys and let you teach. Okay. Cool. Let's go. So time blocks. Yep. Um, let's talk about uh, meeting preferences. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. do you never put some back to back? Do you give yourself? I got to yeah. tell you, um, a lot of people around here at Ramsey Solutions are back to back yeah. to back to yeah. back. And uh, Tim is over there, producer here. And he's looking at me through the window, and I've told him uh, at least 157 times, yeah. give me 30 minutes at least when my Ken Coleman show is off the air right. and to where I got to be over here. And today is an example. My show goes off the air at 2 Central, 3 yeah. Eastern, and here I am with you all at 2.30. I just need a little bit of downtime sure. mm -hmm. just to let my engines cool yeah. and get my head ready. That's you why. Because I've been performing yeah. nonstop right. you know, for a block of time, mm -hmm. and then I just need some time. Give True. us an yeah. example of, of how we do this, how we work with the assistant. Mm -hmm. What do you think are best practices? There's one thing that I've done in the last couple of years that has made a huge difference in helping my assistant schedule for me. So I identified my top five priorities, the five areas of focus that I need to have as a leader. And I designated one per day of the week. Mm -hmm. And so one of them, like Tuesday is grow influence. Okay. And so that's the day where she's going to schedule podcasts or media interviews or... Okay. You know, sure. reviewing the social media calendar, things like that, because that day I'm able to mentally focus on my my external influence. Mm -hmm. Another day is for the team. And so it just has helped her sort of have buckets to put things in and, and to say, OK, I know that you love investing in other people. The next time you can do that is in April because your books, you know, every Thursday that yeah. sort of thing. And that way we're not, because oh, as leaders, we're wanting to achieve, right? right we're wanting course. to do all of the things, but it's not sustainable all the time. So really, for me, those top five priorities have made a huge difference. Okay, I love that. Yeah, yeah for me, scheduling is more about my energy, my energy level. Like in the morning, I'm much more crisp with my thinking. So I'll do my writing then, or um, I'll think critically about something in our business, or I'll be on some very like complex call. Um, and then in the afternoons, I try and protect some time just for mental space, you know, or to take a quick nap, yeah. you know, or do what I need to do just to kind of reset for the rest of the day. And then I don't, I just, I refuse to try and do calls back to back or meetings back to back. I need that buffer of time. You know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm an introvert or whatever, but I just need time to reflect and just to kind of reorient and reset mm -hmm. what's coming up next on my calendar that day. And so you teach this stuff to your assistant and you say, Hey, this gives me energy. You know, another good example is like when we're traveling, Hope knows for me um, that when my inbox gets really kind of busy and, and when we're traveling and kind of doing things like this or whatever, mm -hmm. it puts stress on me. And I hate that because then I'm like thinking, okay, I got to go and do 28 emails tonight and there are people are waiting on me and so forth. So she'll say, okay, let's go through your emails when we're in the car driving from place to place or whatever and say, okay, can I respond for you on this? Oh, that needs to go to marketing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's pure heaven because I can get you know on an airplane, fly home, and realize my inbox is at seven and it's really truly things I can hit in the morning. Right. And But if you don't teach that to them, like what gives you stress as a leader and they don't understand that, then they can't get ahead of, get ahead of you and anticipate yeah. your needs. Yeah. Wow, that is really good. I got to get somebody who's doing that for me. I, I, I just got to get somebody <laughs> responding to all my emails. That would make your life so much better, wouldn't it, Tim? It's I know a company. I, there's to say, help. where would you find help <laughs> yeah. like that? I know, yeah. I know, I know. I'm going to talk to some uh, people here. Uh, okay, that's really good. Okay, so we just kind of talked about email. Um, and, and so we, we kind of went that direction. Let's talk mm -hmm. about rules, filters, responding as you, we kind of touched on that. Yeah. Um, let's spend a little bit more time there because I think that that for a lot of people, cause this is a, this is a known joke around Ramsey Solutions <laughs> for anybody that works with me. I have very different email rules because I'm irritated by the tyranny of email. Like I'm mad mm -hmm. on your behalf. <laughs> That yeah. you feel that way. Yeah. Now, I'm not getting mad at yeah, you. Yeah, no, I get it. I know what I you're I feel saying. like yeah. somebody out there in culture is responsible email. for your stress yeah. over that. And I go, that's crazy. <laughs> it's email. And I mean, like, there used to be a time where we would write a letter to somebody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'd fold it up, put a stamp on it, put it in the mail, and two or three days later, they'd get it. Did you ever get a, a letter from somebody in the mail and immediately walk inside Write a response, put it right back in the mail. Not once. Not one time. Yeah. <laughs> Yet, there is this tyranny of the urgent yeah. on email. Yeah. Now, yeah. I get it. All right. I don't like it. 
but I'm in the matrix. Right. right. I, I'm not Keanu Reeves. I can't fix it. I don't have different color pills. So we do have to deal with the fact that the fact, the reason you're stressed, because people are going, I emailed Brian. Yeah. yeah. It's been two days. Yeah. Um, what, what do we do here? Well, we, we have become a slave to it, but here's the problem or, or the opportunity, however you want to look at it. When you respond well, you respond quickly, you communicate all the right things. Absolutely. When you yeah. don't respond, you communicate all the wrong things. And worse, they get to decide what the answer is. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so as a leader in our business, as co-CEOs, it's incumbent on us to make sure that we're communicative with our employees, with our partners, with our right. clients. Even if the answer is, I don't know, I will get back to you, mm-hmm. that communicates the right message. And right. so, and, we're, and you got to consider what we do for a living. Like, we, we pride ourselves in administration. Of course. So, yeah, if super responsive. Like, yeah. to, to lead yeah. this thing, we have to be responsive. That's right. And, cause, and what we, we have compliments come to us like, oh my gosh, you guys are so responsive as a company. Yeah. yeah. It's because we have chosen to be that way yeah. because we know what's yeah. at stake. Yeah. Here's the deal with email it needs to be addressed, but it is not the leader's job. To answer every email, yeah, hundred percent, right? Yeah. Well, see, that's I'm having a little bit of fun. I better, I better <laughs> stipulate some things, and I'm going to give it back to you. Yeah, I unwittingly, because I was like, I refuse to let, because yeah. I'd rather if you could, if you could come speak to me, pop up two minutes, mm-hmm. yeah, show up at my desk on the fourth floor. Everybody knows where we sit. We're like zoo animals, the Ramsey Purcells. We sit <laughs> in this. Come up there and talk to me, and and what you could. It accomplish in two minutes and blow your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm super responsive. Sure. Yep. Yep. Oh, great. Sure. Yep. Let's do it this way. No, no, no. Tim, you know what I'm talking about. But if you send me an email, it's like now I have to block out time in my day to read through it all. And so I really resisted for a while. Then I realized I was sending the wrong message. Yeah. Unwittingly mm-hmm. that I don't care about your email. Right. That's I right. wasn't. Right. I just said what my position was. Yeah. yeah. It was wrong. I've since, <laughs> but now I've blocked out I've time repented. in my day yeah. to where I'm going, all right. I'm going to answer it here, but yeah. I've also gone the extra mile and communicated to people. Yeah. If it's urgent and it really needs my voice, just find a way to pop up. But back to you, because I do yeah. think this expectation of, well, I'll just send an email and it's like, I'm going to hand the ball to Shannon. Mm-hmm. Your problem, Shannon. I sent you the Throw email. Throw it over the fence. Go get That's it. where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you. You know, a lot of our clients don't have the luxury that you guys have of being able to pop by your office you know they're they're a distributed team maybe they're all virtual like we are or maybe they travel all the time you know so i think you have to know what forms of communication get the right responses to your point if it's urgent pick up the phone and call or i am a link to a zoom meeting so you can see their face like there are way like email is not the way to get a quick response yeah Yeah. right i agree 100 percent. and and it doesn't allow for nuances right yeah. It might take eight emails to accomplish what one two-minute phone call yeah. could accomplish. I've started using Loom a lot lately. What Do you is know that? this? It's a we use the Google platform. Um, and so it's a plug-in for that and it's video capture. Oh, that's cool. Um, so it's much easier for me to shoot a one-minute loom than type a ridiculously long email with seven bullet points. Okay, this is this is fantastic, and yeah. I feel like it's proving my point. So you hit a button. And you essentially it make a me video and my screen, screen, and maybe I'm showing them something on the screen. Incredible. Or like I had to debrief on a meeting that I had, and right. I wanted my leadership team to know how it went. Right. And so instead of sending an email with five different paragraphs, I just said, "Hey guys, had this great conversation. Here are the action items. You know, let me know what you think." Boom, done. It took less time for me to shoot it, and then they could see me right in the video and my expressions, and and run with it. That's right. They're not trying to read into. Well, what did she mean with this sentence? And you're like, I didn't mean anything. Exactly. Yep. I'm trying to fire off an email. Because that non-verbal miles an hour. communication means something. Boy, I got to tell you, email's changing in that way. Oh, really? So. I think so. I think, you think it's, we're going to move more to this loom oh, yeah. type thing. It's more collaborative. You know, like it's this back and forth tennis match is going to become like, hey, I'm bringing in the team to solve this thing. Let's have less messages and get to the essence of what we're trying to accomplish with this subject or this thing. And, and Loom does that in a very good way. It distills it down quickly. You know, and, and then you can have debate and pull it, you know, take it offline or whatever. But it's, I think that that's the way email is going. I mean, for, for our organization, a lot of our assistants serve as air traffic control over a leader's inbox. Right. That's what they're, they're basically, right. for lack of a better way of saying it, they're the router right. for workflow coming into a company. Right. And most times, that's not the leader. Right. That's, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. someone else in the organization needs yeah. to solve that or answer that or whatever. So right. if you have somebody in there that's saying, okay, 
you know, maybe 100 emails come in their inbox, but truly only 20 need to be handled by the leader, then they have time to do things like this and guide and give direction and email. Uh, I mean, because it's true. Like a lot of our clients, they just aren't, they don't have the luxury of being in the same office with each other. Yeah. So here's the deal. Over seven years of running this business, you've had tons and tons of struggles. We love that about you all, not just your successes, but the fact that uh, we're proud that you use Entree, but the fact is you use Entree. Like you take the mm-hmm. principles, you've applied it. Mm-hmm. You've been through a lot of stuff. Um, I, I'm just going to tee you up. Shannon, uh, I'd love for you to share the story of combining the five businesses into one. That <sighs> sounds like a nightmare. And the way you reacted, I feel like it might be. It was the dark night of the soul. <laughs> Seriously. The dark night. If anybody's like, so what's your biggest challenge with the business? I was like, well, let me tell you a story. Right. Um, Basically, up until 2016, Brian and I owned five different companies, separate tax filings, bank accounts, IT systems, teams, the whole deal, based on the service that they provided. And one night, laying in bed, four in the morning, Brian's like, hey, are you awake? No. But yes, I am now. Now What's I up? am. Yeah, Guilty. now I am. I haven't been able to sleep all night. I think we need to combine all of these five companies into one. And he's the like look around the corner, right. visionary, what's next kind of guy, which is great. And I'm more the roll up my sleeves, let's figure out I how to get to. it done kind of girl. And so I immediately went to how in the world right. are we going to do this? Like right. we've spent all this time and energy separating them. Why would we combine them? And I lay and he's like, yeah, you know, we can talk about it tomorrow. I just, I couldn't sleep. I had to, you know, had to just say something. And I'm like, awesome. He rolls over, falls asleep, starts snoring. Oh, this is great. Right? Because you got it out. Oh, yeah. He felt great. He got it It off his chest. Awesome. It's cathartic. (laughs) Yeah, gone. I mean, yeah. Talk to you in the morning. Boom, um, he's out. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm laying there like, like, bleak, bleak, wide awake. How is this going to happen? And it was a, a crisis for me, not because I didn't agree with him, but because I was wondering Am I able to be the leader to to do this? Right. Like, have I found my limit? What was so scary? Can you remember? I didn't want to go back to the team in, in reverse course. Why? Um, I wanted them to be able to trust us. And you thought that if you went back and said, okay, I know we've done all of this yeah. for this long yep. to do this, but we're going to change it. And you thought they were going to go... You've lost your mind. We're out of here. Yeah, and a couple did. Yeah. Mutiny. Yeah. We yeah. had a couple of people that said, we're not up for this and we're out. Okay. You know, there was some. Yeah. I love hearing there the fear. I Because I want our audience to, to, to feel that visceral emotion that you had at that time. And that yeah. makes total sense. It, I mean, it, so how'd like, you get through it? It's like you're like, okay, follow us this way. Oh, wait, just kidding. Right. Um, now I'll go over so here. You do it? And it's like, it was a re-up moment for me, just being totally honest with yeah. you. Like, I never like didn't want to do this, but I honestly thought I wouldn't be able to yeah. because I, I wasn't sure I believed in it completely. Right. So I had to wrestle with myself. And Brian and I had some really tough conversations, a lot of tears, like, if this is the right thing to do, am I the right person to do it? Right. And I, I honestly, it was a lot of affirming myself, which sounds super self-help, and I don't mean for it to, but basically, like, I've never been equipped to, to lead this business. Why is this any different? Like, you, sure. just, you well, just figure it out. You, you had know? some doubt. I don't think that that's self-helpy. <laughs> I don't think that that's crazy. I think that's very real. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I think I had to give myself permission to... Yeah. To have a pity party and and then it's like okay, you know, buck up. And you did it. How this long is what did we're it gonna take do to make it all? Yeah, our team is incredible. We so we we decided this in like midway through 2016. Made the plan for the rest of that year on how we're going to consolidate it and started doing that. So 17 was like the rebuilding year. Uh-huh. And that's where we came up with Belay. We right. took all these five companies, EA Help, Meg, Big Bookkeeping, made them into Belay. And so 17 was a real rough year. Like Brian said, we had some attrition. You know, we're figuring out how to work together in this new organization. Sure. Who are we, right? right? And so um, in 2018, we really hit this new stride. Like we had found our place and um, it was the best decision that I never wanted to make. <laughs> yeah, and and if I'm and I don't know this for a fact, so correct me. Yeah. But eighteen best year ever. Oh yeah, oh, I mean, we're I mean, explosive forty one percent growth in our seventh year of business. And was it a direct result of deciding to combine the companies? I personally think yes. Yeah. I what think, do you think? 
We got to hear God, your panic. don't make me say it out loud, well, Ken. I'm not, I'm not asking you to call him <laughs> yeah. out or endorse yeah. him. I'm no, saying totally we got to hear was. you struggling. Do you feel like that was a massive Okay, you know this. Factor. It is a natural tendency for businesses as they age and grow to become more complex. Right. We had done just that. Right. And so consolidating them all into Belay reduced a lot of complexity. Right. Yeah. So it was absolutely the foundation that we needed to right. lay to be able to receive this growth that we've had this right. year. You know, certainly the book's helped and podcast opportunities right. like this help and website changes through our good friends sure. at Story Brand. That all helps. It all makes sense. But I don't know that we could have gotten even close to 41% growth right. in 2018 had we not been yeah. one company. That's awesome. It's it's very hard. You know, as a married couple, you want to remain married, but then you got to lead a company together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've all had this. If you're married, you've, you've at some point you're, you've made a decision or you've had actions that break your spouse like right. they just it breaks them and that was one of those things that i just realized it like broke her and i was like golly this is such a horrible decision and uh, you know maybe second guess like is this the right thing but i think you were just as you work through it together as a couple you realize like yeah we're, we're gonna figure it out and do it together and and but it's awful feeling to realize like this idea this thing you think could really help grow your business yeah it's you know, possibly self-selecting your spouse that you did this with out of the business. And yeah. I was like, I don't want that. I don't want to do this with you. Of course. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, fortunately, she re-upped and has done awesome, <laughs> yeah. you know. but uh, And let me ask you this, because we don't talk about this much on this podcast. What has it done for you relationally, if you don't mind me asking? It's, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I will tell you, for me, um, you know, there's two people in a relationship. It's it's forced me to be a better human being. and. Mm-hmm. And and force me to get after my own personal development all the more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to lead a business and feels like sometimes you're inadequate to lead that business and right. its growth and so forth and stay ahead of it. Right. That's another thing when you realize, oh, I'm still also a dad and a mm-hmm. husband, and I've got I've got to I've got to grow personally and in right. all those ways to stay healthy so that the business continue to grow because it's not you can't you got to be more than a one dimensional person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you can't just have a great business and then your marriage fall apart. That's right. And so it's, you got to work on all of you to kind of see it all rise together. Yeah. That's how it's changed me. Yeah. I, I think it definitely helped us get more real and honest with each other. You oh, know, it's I one, would imagine so. Right. It's one <laughs> thing to be tight and connected when things are great, but right. man, when you're in the trenches mm-hmm. and really going through the most difficult season ever mm-hmm. and you can say like, I don't know if I can do this. And, and, and he didn't freak out and he didn't run away yeah. and he didn't, you know, say, I agree, you suck, you know, like right. <laughs> to create that space for somebody and to be able to share really your deepest, darkest fears right. and to know that they're going to get your back yeah. instead of taking advantage of that yeah. is, is huge. Yeah. And it, I don't know that, you know, if we don't experience hard times in the business right. or personally or with our families that, that you can really forge those deep. Yep bonds it's good stuff brian and shannon miles now you know why they're good friends they're doing some great stuff uh, great resources which we'll tell you about uh, we'll have available for you in the show notes of this podcast but uh, this is always fun to have you guys yeah. here thrilled Thank for you. you we really are i mean Thank it's fun you. to see you guys thrive you're smashing it uh, we're rooting for you here obviously and we appreciate you hanging out with us and making our audience better we love you guys yeah. you're awesome great for Thank you, guys. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Brian and Shannon. Now, Brian wrote a book entitled Virtual Culture that we talked about in previous episodes. This free chapter we're about to give you is going to take you in depth to what we discussed today so that you can actually take some action with what you heard him talk about and now apply it through this chapter. If you want to get the free chapter from his book, Virtual Culture, click the link in this episode's show notes. It's free. Did I mention that it's free? Did I mention that it's going to help you? Okay, great. Now that we're clear on that, go do it. Here's a math refresher. There are only 24 hours in a day, so you and your team need to streamline time-consuming tasks to focus on the activities that make money. Smart businesses are realizing that to reduce headaches as they scale, they need NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform. With NetSuite, you can reduce IT costs because it's cloud-based. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one source of truth. It's a big deal. And 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, saving time and cutting manual tasks and errors. So join the more than 37,000 smart companies like Ramsey Solutions that have done the math and are boosting their efficiency with NetSuite. And right now you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to drive the right behaviors for your business absolutely free at NetSuite.com slash Ramsey. That's NetSuite.com slash Ramsey to get your own KPI checklist. This episode is brought to you by Trainual. Even when you're great at running the day-to-day, a lot of leaders struggle to delegate. But delegation is a critical leadership skill, and empowering your team by building that skill just takes having the right system in place. Well, Trainual is that system, and it's a game changer. Trainual is an easy-to-use app that helps document and organize everything about your company in one place. Clear outlines for every role and responsibility, step-by-step training for all your SOPs and employee handbook content, an org chart and directory. You can build accountability tests. Employees can even use Trainual's powerful search to answer their own questions. Companies using Trainual are cutting training time and related costs by up to 75%. Get started with over 300 templates and their world-class support. It's time to get your entire team playing from the same playbook. Visit trainual.com slash entree today for a demo and get 15% off your first year with code entree15. That's 15% off at T-R-A-I-N-U-A-L dot com slash entree with code E-N-T-R-E-1-5. All right, this is fun. So Alex Judd, who is one of our Entree Leadership coaches, and now he's the host of the Entree Leadership Summit and Entree Leadership Master Series, going to continue to contribute. And he recently got the opportunity to sit down with Donald Miller. He joins me in studio. Alex, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Ken. Really appreciate it. So how fun was this? Oh, man, so good. I remember the first time you interviewed Donald Miller, and it was specifically about his story brand framework that has literally changed marketing for thousands of businesses around our country. And we said, how cool would it be? How fascinating would it be to interview him on how he built his business from the ground up? So we talked to him about that and all the lessons that he's learned around the way. Here's the interview with Donald Miller. So you wrote A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. That's right. In 2009. It's a best-selling book. Yeah. Radically different than building a story brand. Yeah. Do you, at that time... Was the idea in the back of your head, I want to be a business owner, I want to be an entrepreneur one day? No, I was a full-on writer. and uh, But actually, that book, people read it, and they wanted a more formulaic structure to create a life plan, because that's really what that book is about. It's about exploring what gives us meaning in life. That caused me to start a business called Storyline, and then marketing Storyline caused me to create the framework for Story Brand, and Story Brand is what took off. And that's how it happened. That's how it happened. But it wasn't this dream of I'm going to own a business one day at all. No, because I did own a business. I mean, as a writer and speaker, I had an assistant. I owned a small business. You know, it wasn't a super lucrative business, but I'd already thought of myself as a business. So I think scaling my business and, you know, all the, you know, hiring people, letting people go, creating processes, figuring out, uh, you know, EBITDA and all that kind of stuff. That came after, probably after story brand more okay. than anything else. Later so on. That would later when it became a formal business. I should say it this way. The transition from me selling myself to selling a product came with story brand. And that's when that occurred. That's okay. when that occurred. So you even said yourself, when you wrote A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, you thought of yourself as a writer. Right. And I think probably everyone else thought of Donald Miller as a writer and speaker as right. well. I think so often it's so easy to just hear a title and we just live into that title for the rest of our lives. Right. Was that difficult for you to break out of that? No. Really? No, it's more difficult for fans to see you as something different. But I look at it almost like uh, there are lifelong writers and they spend their lives writing. I was a memoirist and really exploring theological and philosophical ideas through the lens of memoir. And I'd written seven memoirs. And, you know, I'm convinced if you write your eighth, you're actually a clinical narcissist. So I was unwilling to write the eighth one. (laughs) It just wasn't going to happen. So I'm still a writer, but it was important for me to pivot my career. 
And I think of it almost like an athlete in the NFL or something. At some point, your body is not going to cooperate. You need to become a coach. You need to buy a chain of restaurants. You need to do something differently. And I look at it very much like that. I was out of ink when it came to writing about myself. But I lit up when the thought occurred to me, I could actually help somebody else tell their story, especially a brand telling a marketing story. Because I was a marketing major in college, and I've always sort of run a business and thought about that. I didn't know that. So that really excited me. And so when I wrote Story Brand, which was my first business book, it was a real pivot to a different kind of career. But at the same time, it felt like all of my life had been heading toward this, you know, this framework I'd used it to write books. I'd used it to grow a conference company. And now I could actually use it to help thousands of other businesses figure it out too. It was the most natural progression from the inside. From the outside, it must have been very jolting. Everyone's like, what, what, who are yeah, you anymore? Don You're Miller, a radically different you know, person. Sitting around pulling lint out of his belly button and talking <laughs> about it in a chapter. And now he's helping people make millions of dollars. To me, that's the same, the exact same guy. It's just that in, Blue Like Jazz and Million Mountains Thousand, I was showing people this part of my personality. And with building a story brand, I'm showing them a whole different part of my personality that really was underpinning this whole memoir career. You do not have a book on the New York Times for 42 weeks unless you are good at marketing and good at messaging. You just don't. And so – So you were still doing it oh, back I doing then. It. I was doing it the whole time. Fascinating. So I think so often people allow the expectations of others to – serve as the driving force or the guide for their life. Right. Was that a challenge for you to not allow that to happen? Oh, you know, maybe for a minute, I think, uh, you know, that first bit of criticism that you get when you release a book, of course, you release a book and your ego is tied to it and you're so excited about it and the world's finally going to hear your story and all that kind of stuff. And really one of the first things that happens to you when you do that is you just get punched square in the face. I mean, somebody actually goes on Amazon and said, this is the most ridiculous thing blah, 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 and, you know, this guy's this or that. And you're literally just like, I gave you a love letter, and you, this is a, so that hurt for a little while, and then all of a sudden I kind of went, wait, there's a difference between what the public thinks is happening and what's actually happening, and you have to kind of forgive that difference and take responsibility for it, because to some degree, you know, they're right. This criticism is actually partly true, so I need to somehow turn the other cheek and learn from this. So I'm grateful for my early writing career because now criticism, it's a millisecond of going, okay, well, that actually is true. Ooh, I do need to fix that. That's kind of personal and mean. If we sat down and had coffee, we probably wouldn't talk to each other that way. And you just move on. And So, so it did affect it, you in the it, beginning. It did, and you it, built and the it, muscle up it, now. That's right. And it does not now. So now it's a matter of um, – you know, when you're on a freeway driving your car and you change lanes, sometimes people will honk at you even though you didn't do it dangerously. There's a feeling of, hey, everybody stay in their lane and keep the status quo. I think that's one of the reasons that people stay poor. I think it's one of the reasons people are in relationships that they shouldn't be in. I think it's one of the reasons people live unhealthy lives is because they're staying in their lane. And what they don't realize, you know, if you just get over and somebody honks at you, the good news is you're in a different lane now. You know, and do it again, and now you're in an even different lane. They're only going to honk at you for a few minutes. Okay, so what do you do if those people are your closest friends or your parents or your wife, potentially? What do you do in that situation where the people that are honking are saying, like, dude, get back in your lane? Yeah, you don't. You keep going into the lane. Is there a time where you do, though? Is there a time where, like, those people are actually a voice of reason? If you are delusional. Yeah. If I called you or we saw each other at the gym, Alex works out at the same gym I do. And you say, Don, looks like you're getting in good shape. And I say, yeah, you know, I actually want to be a, a linebacker in the NFL. <laughs> I think you're about 25 years too old <laughs> to actually accomplish yeah, that. That's the only issue, that's though. That's yeah, We're good. <laughs> but, dip, the, you know, yes, you know, you do want to be called on delusional fantasies. But, you know, I'm somebody who has just always had a really great ambition. When I was in high school, I wrote down on a piece of paper, I want to be a multimillionaire. I want to be a New York Times bestselling author. I want to be this – in high school, people would have said, this is crazy. You don't even make good grades, you know. But you sort of like test that stuff and you move into it and you say, is this okay? Is this okay to go here? A lot of people will say no, but you have to push through that resistance and you make it happen. And the more you can understand that, one, people are – they like the status quo. They like the power structure the way it is because they're comfortable. And you are disrupting the power structure in your community. 
you just need to, as kindly as possible, give them time to get used to it because you are not going to settle. And I think that's been key for me. The key is as kindly as possible. But I'm going this way. I'll do it kindly. And I will not take your criticism personally. Mm. But this is going to happen. Now, I have lost friendships over this. There were friendships that I had early on. I'm thinking of two or three relationships where it was sort of a mentor-mentee relationship. And as I became a little more successful, that didn't feel like the same relationship. It felt like, actually, I think you might have something to learn from me now. And it was very clear in those relationships that they were not in it for that reason. They were in it because it actually made them feel kind of powerful to be a teacher of mine. Of Donald Miller. That's right. And as it's not that we passed each other up. It's just that I no longer needed that advice or see that advice is super helpful. We can still be friends. But you could have done say, that in a very hostile way, though. We could, we could have, yeah. Mm. But in the end, the agreement that they had made with the world was I'm the leader, you're the follower. And when I became more of the leader, those relationships – because I was not going to pretend to be somebody who still, you know, needed to know what you taught me, those relationships needed to be redefined. And in that redefinition, the agreement was no longer there and they bowed out. Mm. Now, that none of that happened formally. Yeah. But that's certainly the way that it felt. Okay. So I look at your bio and I think this guy's written multiple best-selling books. Blue Light Jazz sold over a million copies. Now he owns a $10 million company. He was on something called a presidential task force, which I didn't even know was a thing. But it, uh, you, you, the list of things you've done is remarkable. And then I hear you say, as a high schooler, I wrote down that I was going to do X, Y, Z. Like, do you look back at that high school list and say, that is one of the reasons why is because I cast a vision? Or did you even remember that whenever you were doing all this? How did all no, that I play remember in? It. I remember it really well. And, um, you know, here's what happened to me. My mom found some machine somewhere where you could type in a name and it would print a certificate telling you what that name means. So at like five or six years old, she typed in Donald Lewis Miller into some machine somewhere. I don't know how she, where she got this thing. And it printed out this certificate that said what your name means. And my name meant fearless leader. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that somebody just made that up. Right? Like, <laughs> fearless leader. If your name is Kate Jones, you probably got fearless leader also. It was just a random fortune printing. cookie. That's right, a fortune cookie. Uh, my mother framed that and hung it in my room. And I remember, I mean, this hung in my room for 10 years. That's pretty powerful. It, it was very powerful. And I remember reading it and just being terrified. So I'm reading that I'm a fearless leader. And I'm, so obviously it should occur to me that this is not a correct assessment of what my, who might be. But I was convinced from a very early age, this is what you have to do. You literally have to become. Otherwise, a, you're not Donald Miller anymore. Otherwise, you, you have not lived up to your name. And this is telling you who you are. So and you were reading it as an expectation. Reading it as an expectation. And so this idea of. You know, this all, you know, writing business books or becoming a business leader, all those things. Subconsciously, I think my mind always just said, well, that's who you are and this is what the world needs from you. And so perhaps I was tricked into a successful life. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, Thanks, mom. Yeah. Well, honestly, thank you very much because it's been really wonderful. But I think uh, from an early age, there was this expectation of, no, let's go out and serve people and have an impact in some possible way. Is vision casting a strength for you? It is. It's a huge strength of mine. Details and execution are not. So I staff my liabilities. I find really, really wonderful people who are very good at – now, I'm good at details when it comes to writing a book. But the actual details and executing a strategy are not my strong suit. And so that's what you've hired for now. I have staffed that all around me. And so I'm really good at vision. And what's amazing to me is um, my COO's name is Tim. I call him my left brain. We really run a business together. And he's wonderful. He's a terrific human being. And Tim has told me a few times, he said, Don, I just, it's so weird to me that you wake up and you see something that doesn't exist. You see a building that doesn't exist. You see a podcast that doesn't exist. You see a book that doesn't exist. You see a whole staff and what they do that doesn't exist. I could just never do that. And that is so foreign to me because I sit there and go, I just assume everybody thinks this way. You just way. thought that was normal. I thought it was normal. And what's really beautiful about that is what it tells me is that God did not make me a, quote, complete human being in a team sense. 
that he gave me these liabilities in order to create a beautiful community. Wow. That, okay, so that's the question I have. For a visionary, we have seen visionaries who see things that don't exist, but maybe it's pride that gets in the way. Maybe it's something else. For whatever reason, they're not willing or able to let go of the control of the putting the and operationalizing that vision to someone else. And yeah. you have done the exact, you have handed off, you said a side of your brain to Tim, your COO and said, I'm going to cast the vision and you're going to control, you're going to build this thing to a degree. Was that hard? You know, it wasn't, you know, but I became convinced that one of the best ways to succeed is not actually to know what you're good at, although that's important, but to know what you're bad at. And if you can actually say, I'm bad at this, but in order to accomplish this goal, I'm going to have to get help. If you love the goal more than you love your ego, you'll do it in a heartbeat. Ooh, that's good. But if you love, love the your goal e more than the ego. Yeah, if you love your goal more than your ego, you can do anything you want. If you want to do something and you're willing to give other people credit, you'll do even more. Because mm. people – and the truth is they probably did more than you think they did and you were probably not as necessary as you thought you were, right? <laughs> so, but the idea is if you can kind of create one mind with a group of people, that one mind is going to be mega brain. It's going to get a lot done and that's the goal. That is remarkable because in reading Scary Close – I resonated with the version of Donald Miller that struggles with trying to impress people. Yes. And that's one of the things. But now you're in a business ownership position where literally all you are trying to do is add value to others and deflect things away from yourself. You're saying, I'm not the hero. You're the hero. I'm the guide. You are doing this thing. How does that shift occur? Well, I'm an Enneagram 3, and there are probably a lot of 3s listening, <laughs> but we are performers, and it's a God-given gift. I don't want to take anything away from it. It's necessary in culture to have these performers and these success-oriented people like you and me. The downside is it can sometimes be hard to actually connect with other people because you really walk into the room and you want to impress them or you're an actor on a stage. And that's hard to connect with an actor on a stage because they're on a stage. It's in, so a lot of times – People like you and I would have trouble having conversations like this because these are vulnerable conversations. So I learned early on that if I wanted to connect with my wife and I want to have good relationships, there comes a point where I need to stop acting. One of the ways that I learned this, in fact, it's the pivotal way that I learned it. This, is, this was huge for me, was I have a friend named Joshua Dubois, and Joshua worked in the Obama White House. Joshua was the guy who would go into Newtown before the president and prepare him to talk to the parents of the children who had been murdered. Oh, my God. That was his job. So he was in Newtown first. He was in Charleston, South Carolina after the shooting at the black church. He was there. He was in, I think it was Indiana or Wisconsin, I think, at the mm -hmm. Sikh uh, temple. So he was going into these crisis situations and prepping yes. people to speak to the president. And also prepping the president. Joshua, when I asked him, Josh, what do you do to prepare somebody for that? I mean, how do you prepare the president? How do you prepare that environment? And he would say, well, it was actually Obama really taught me, you know, he is a performer. He's probably an Enneagram 3. But he said, you cannot be an actor on a stage. You have to show up and be human. And be human means look somebody in the eye, be okay with not knowing exactly what to say, which is hard for an Enneagram 3. Let there be awkward human moments between people. Awkward silence. Awkward silences. Be human. And when I heard, well, the president of the United States is okay in with the highest stakes possible walking in and being human, I should be okay too. And not only that, but walking in and being human is actually a great recipe for success. So in the end, you want to perform to be successful, but it's counterintuitive. You walk in and be a human, and, and sometimes things are awkward. You don't exactly know what to say, but you showed up. You're there, and you're vulnerable in the moment. It's that's a great what's way. radically successful. That's what's ra that's, well, it's also what people connect with and what I think is our responsibility as, as evolved human beings. How has that recognition played into your leadership? You know, recently we let somebody go, and some of it was their fault, and some of it was my fault. Because I didn't do a good job leading them or setting expectations and things that I needed for them to do. And I certainly didn't do a good job putting a support staff around them. I had to own that. So you have to look them in the eye and say, I'm at fault a lot here. And be there. Don't be an actor on a stage. Don't try to be right. And be fully human. You know, so that's actually helped quite a bit. And the alternative there is blame. The alternative is shift blame. And to those companies cap at about $5 million, They don't get a whole lot bigger. Mm. What are you most passionate about right now? <laughs> building the middle class. We talked about it earlier. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there was a pivot from writing memoirs to 
building a business. And, and I expect StoryBrand to go to $100 million. You know, we're $10 million now, so that's a lot of work to do. Do you, like, do you ever just sit in the moment and say, like, I just casually said that I expect my company to go to $100 million. Does that ever feel like, oh, my – did I just say <laughs> – do you ever have that look in the mirror moment where it's like, is, you know, am I, I in the middle of this right now? I don't. I, I, I don't. I just tend to – you know, if you're driving an F1 car – you're not thinking, well, I'm driving an F1. You better pay attention <laughs> to the next curve because yeah. you're going to roll this baby. Uh, no, I, I, I'm very, very grateful. Betsy and I live on a fixed income. We're the third or fourth highest paid people at our company. Mm. The rest of the money goes into investments that we don't mess with and charitable giving. So to me, to say $100 million doesn't change anything for me. Okay. And not to say we don't live well. I drive a really nice used F-150. You know, very I, good. I'm very I happy love that. So no, that doesn't. But the shift from writing memoirs to building this company, there's a goal that I want to hit with the company. And after that, it will be a life, uh, hopefully from 55 for the rest of my life on, you know, so 20 really hopefully good years will be in public service, either as a politician running for office, but preferably as a support player to help you know, I did a task force with Obama, and I'm a Republican, but the task force That's was really on, encouraging to hear. It was on fatherhood and healthy families, and Obama recognized that we have a fatherhood crisis in this country. He's the only president who's ever done that. You don't have to be Democrat to agree with that. No. In fact, it was – focus on the family was on the task force. I mean, it was – you know, there was – it was a, a good, healthy task force. And that made me realize how – one, how slow government moves. It's unbelievable. But at the end of that, we were able to get some legislation through and some policies through that reunited fathers coming out of prison with their own children and gave them an emotional reason not to go back to prison. Well, that saves taxpayers an enormous amount of money, and it changes families' lives. And when I saw the power of that, I thought, well, I wonder what the power of the tax code is, and I wonder what the power of our education policies are. And I began to see these these are incredibly powerful dynamics that we don't realize have, by the way, made an American life wonderful, maybe the best quality of life in the world and in the history of the world. Today. These are all policies set forth by our founding fathers. And so I would consider myself a conservative, though people probably – some people wouldn't because I'm open-minded to mm -hmm. other ideas. But I want to conserve those policies and traditions. So it's so interesting to hear someone that is remarkably creative – that is extremely ambitious, that is a self-described, and obviously everyone would agree with this, a visionary, say, the federal government. That's where I, that's what I'm interested in now. Well, we've made an enemy out of the federal government, but you know, if we keep making them enemies, at what point is a good person going to show up and actually help? It's supposed to be a government of the people. It is. Yeah, so we need some more good folks in there. Who are the people that you look up to most right now? Oh, our former governor here in Tennessee, Bill Haslam, our current governor, Bill Lee, with his development and education uh, stuff that he's done is just the solution to so many problems. Bill Haslam has become a friend, and he, I look up to him a great deal. There are a lot of thinkers that I look up to a lot, but everybody else would be personal. I mean, Bob Goff is a very close friend. Bob has this ability to not be naive about the, the way the world is. It's a very dark world in many corners of the world. But he never struggles with nihilism. He wakes up every day and brings a little light into the darkness. I think we need more and more of that. I'm surrounded by people who are just so inspirational. Old friend John Richmond and I used to get barbecue when I lived in D.C. He's now Ambassador Richmond on human trafficking and you know makes the trafficking in persons report every year. There are so I'm telling you, for every villain, there are a thousand heroes. Hmm. We just our mind goes to the villain too quickly. There are a thousand good guys for every bad guy. I promise you. That's a pretty remarkable story to share. I'll tell you, for me as a 27 year old, and we've got a lot of young 20 somethings or 30 somethings that listen to this. I hear about all of the things that you've been involved in and all of the things that you've done and all the things that you're currently doing and the vision that you have for the future. There's a part of me that is beyond inspired and then there's a part of me that thinks, my goodness, I'm just never – I'm never going to be able to do all that. <laughs> like how on earth does he even do all that? What would you say to that person that feels both in awe and in admiration but at the same time daunted by the wall of work that is what you've been able to accomplish? Well, I would say to you, Alex, at 27, I had never really made more than about $20,000 a year. Right at your age, I became president of a publishing company. I think I made fifty grand that year because it was a small company. 
then immediately got poor again. Uh, <laughs> at 29 or 30, finally wrote Blue Like Jazz, and that's when things took off. So really, I was a late bloomer. And I would say if we were in a race, you're about eight miles ahead of me. <laughs> so I think you're doing pretty darn well. Uh, and I think you would just be amazed at how if you stay curious and let your mind get excited about things and don't ever give in to the cancer of cynicism, the rest takes care of itself. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We're super grateful for it. I'm super grateful for it selfishly. Donald Miller, thanks so much. Alex, thank you. Great work, Alex. Isn't it fun to sit with somebody that is that smart? Sometimes, I don't know if it's like this for you, but sometimes I feel like I'm completely, uh, the water's over my head. And uh, I'm just that's trying an to keep my nose up. Yeah, yeah. He, he is a visionary. Yeah, he is. It is amazing. So yeah. yeah, that was a blast. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Well, I enjoyed it. Great work, man. And we're excited to have you back on the program. So appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Ken. All right, folks, you're going to hear more from Alex in future episodes. And if I look at my notes, that's going to do it. I hope you're as sad as I am, but we've got to end it. There's nothing else coming. So on behalf of the entire Entree Leadership team, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon. Hey folks, I want to make you aware that we have other great podcasts from Ramsey Solutions. Here's a sample of The Ken Coleman Show. According to a recent Gallup poll, nearly 70% of Americans are disengaged at work. If you dread going into work every Monday morning and you're just trying to make it to the weekend, The Ken Coleman Show is for you. Everyone has a sweet spot. Your sweet spot is at the intersection of your greatest talent and greatest passion. We will help you discover what it is you were born to do, and then we'll help you create a plan to make your dream job a reality. You matter, and you have what it takes. Join the conversation on The Ken Coleman Show. To hear full episodes, just search Ken Coleman in iTunes or go to KenColemanShow.com. 